Welcome to VBAC Birth Stories. Join us as we speak to Australian women about their journey towards a vaginal birth after cesarean. In Australia, the cesarean rate has risen to 36%. That's one of the highest rates in the developed world. We hope that by sharing these stories, women and their care providers are able to gain insight into why these rates are on the increase. We also get to meet and understand the women behind these numbers. We are your hosts, Mel and Steph, and we hope you enjoy Season 3 of Feedback Birth Stories. VBAC Birth Stories acknowledge the ongoing connection that Aboriginal people have to this land and recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of the land on which we stand. This podcast is produced on Darugan Gundagara and Gadiga land and we would like to pay respect to its elders, past and present. Hi everyone, hope you're all going well. It's Mel here. Steph and I have been very busy lately. As you could probably tell, we've got uh, actually a lot going on in our personal lives at the moment and uh, finding time for the podcast is uh, proving to be a little bit trickier these days, but uh, nevertheless, we are happy to be able to get an episode out when we can. And today's episode is uh, a really great, unique story. And we're so appreciative to Shelley, who has come forward to share her story. Shelley is a mum of two, an occupational therapist as well from Adelaide. Shelley reached out to us shortly after having her baby because she wanted to share her unique circumstances surrounding her first birth and her VBAC. So Shelley lives with HSV-1 genital. HSV stands for herpes simplex virus. And because of the stigma this carries, Shelley could not find any stories from women who have navigated pregnancy and birth with this condition. It is estimated that three quarters of Australian adults are carriers of the HSV-1 virus. So it's more common than what we may think. Shelley talks about how her genital herpes affected the outcome of her first birth, and although a very empowering and positive cesarean, she still held the desire to have a VBAC for next time. Unlike her first birth, genital herpes didn't play a role in the outcome of her second birth. However, being COVID positive at the time she went into labour certainly did affect things. Although her VBAC didn't go the way Shelley envisioned, There was intervention there. She felt in control the entire time due to the preparation she had done during her VBAC pregnancy and reading books like The Birth Map to map out her birth in a way that would best ensure a positive outcome both physically and mentally, regardless of how baby was born. Shelley also shares how she had a positive breastfeeding journey with her second baby, which wasn't the case with her first baby. Steph and I want to thank you so much, Shelley, for talking to us and sharing your experience publicly. We know your story will help so many women out there. Thank you to our patrons for helping to bring this episode to you. Please consider supporting the podcast from as little as $2 a month if you are enjoying the show. You can find the link to Patreon in our show notes, as well as the resources mentioned in this episode. Steph and I really appreciate the support and it does help to keep us going. 
for now, please enjoy this episode of VBAC Bird Stories. Today, we are speaking with Shelley. Shelley, thanks for joining us today to share your VBAC journey. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself? I'm Shelley. I live in Adelaide with my husband, Dave, and we have two children, a daughter, Molly, who is now just over two, and little George, who is um, 13 weeks now. I'm an occupational therapist and work in paediatrics, which is an amazing job. I co-founded and co-direct a little private practice in Adelaide with a colleague and friend of mine. And so that keeps that keeps us busy. Before you fell pregnant with your first, uh, did you have any preconceived ideas about birth or pregnancy? Yeah, I had a lot of experience with friends who had had children with kind of the last, one of the last group of friends to have children. So I'd been around lots of pregnant women and lots of babies personally. And then also through work, I'd had a lot of experience in conversations of birth stories and pregnancy. And I guess my preconceived idea was hopeful that everything would go as well as it could. And also knowing that there could be road bumps along the way. And if there were, then we would just kind of problem solve them as we went along. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways was just quite casual about it. Mm, <laughs> was just yeah. like, let's just dive in and see what happens. When you did fall pregnant for the first time, do you want to tell us about that pregnancy? So our first pregnancy sadly ended in a really early miscarriage at six weeks. So that was, yeah, that was sad and I wasn't prepared for that at all um, Mm. despite so many women having miscarriages and so many of my friends experiencing miscarriages yeah that took a little bit of time to kind of just emotionally get our heads around and recover from and then our second pregnancy was Molly we were very fortunate and incredibly grateful that getting pregnant for us was something that happened quite easily which is certainly not the norm for so many women And then once I got pregnant with Molly, we had a smooth pregnancy, the general nausea until about 16 weeks. It was manageable. It wasn't debilitating. Other than that, in terms of Molly's pregnancy, I didn't have any other complications. And you chose to go through the private system. Did you want to tell us about that, why you made that decision? Yeah, so in my head, I'd always known that I wanted to go down the private route with an obstetrician. For me, I really wanted that continuity of care and I wanted to know who I was going to turn up to see and who was going to be there. I did want an obstetrician in terms of if anything medically was to be complicated, I wanted access to someone quite easily. And we live relatively close to a really lovely private hospital. So I had kind of picked the hospital that friends had had positive experiences with and then Mm. from there researched which obstetrician I think would be the best fit for us. I just did some asking around and looking online and 
met with her for the first time after our initial miscarriage and she was wonderful and instantly just felt really supported and connected with her. So in my mind, it was a really easy decision for us to make. So what happened towards the end of your pregnancy? So towards the end of my pregnancy, I unfortunately experienced a herpes simplex virus reoccurrence. So it's something that I've lived with now for almost 10 years. I get outbreaks maybe once every 12 months or so um, but it's something that's really well managed in my body and unfortunately (laughs) right at the end of pregnancy I had a reoccurrence of an episode which I hadn't had all pregnancy and really in my mind that wasn't going to happen and it was fine and it was all under control but towards the end of pregnancy my system became quite stressed and quite anxious it was Yeah, a combination of a few things for me. COVID had just kind of started to ramp up in Australia and running a small business was quite stressful Mm. Um, at that time, just not knowing what was going to happen to our business and how were we actually going to make it through and with myself going on leave shortly, what was that even going to look like? And so I got quite stressed and that's when I generally will have a herpes simplex virus outbreak and unfortunately at 39 weeks I had an episode and then I lost my mucus plug and then started getting really early contractions and so it was just timing (laughs) timing wise for me and so early on with my obstetrician we made that decision together to have a cesarean rather than to potentially risk passing that on to the baby and how would you usually manage is it usually managed through antibiotics or how how would you have otherwise managed the outbreak if you're not being pregnant um it didn't change so I normally take an antiviral medication for it at the earliest onset of having an outbreak and for me I know the feelings right away so I can take my medication and it generally has passed within 48 hours I did start taking a suppressive medication at 36 weeks pregnant in the hope of avoiding an Mm. outbreak, which is kind of the recommended treatment path. However, obviously it was not enough for my system to avoid it. (laughs) So it it is recommended to have a cesarean when an outbreak occurs during pregnancy. Had you sort of talked with your obstetrician initially about like, did you have a desire to birth vaginally? Was that discussed with your obstetrician? And it was more just, if this happens, then the cesarean would be the likely pathway. Is that kind of how it played out? Yeah, spot on. So my dream was to have as natural birth as possible um, vaginally. And again, we had that plan of if there was an outbreak, then we would manage that. However, given I was on the suppressive medication from 36 weeks, it was quite a shock, I think, to both of us that I had an outbreak. There are still there still are women who choose to give birth vaginally if they do have an outbreak the risk is very small however in my mind that was too overwhelming for me Mm. that risk so is the risk that you can actually then pass it on to the baby is that right yeah absolutely so if you've got any lesions in your genital tract at delivery then there is a slightly higher risk that you can pass on the herpes virus to your newborn, which can be an incredibly devastating disease for a newborn. Mm. So for me, it was 
pretty much a no-brainer that I would just avoid that risk completely um, mm. and opt for a cesarean. How was your cesarean? So you said that you, you lost your mucus plug and then, yeah, take us from there. Yeah, so I had lost my mucus plug, went in to see the obstetrician the next morning. She said I was experiencing some really mild contractions. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I wasn't really feeling anything. You kind of don't know when it's your first time, right? Like you just don't know. Um, I'd been having quite a few of them and that's all it felt mm. like. So then that morning we were like, oh, okay, this is happening. We really need to make a decision soon. What are we going to do? And so then she said, well, how about we have the cesarean today? How does five o'clock sound? And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Guess I'll go home and pack my bag. (laughs) So I jumped in the car, called my husband. It's like, it's happening today. You need to come home. Um, We need to get into a hospital. Um, And so we did that. And the cesarean itself and the team was really beautiful and really gentle also in some ways very empowering that it was my decision to have Mm. that and I was Mm. taught through every step that was happening I asked my obstetrician to tell me exactly what she was doing and when she was doing it and the medical health part of my brain really liked that because that made sense to me and I think that Mm. helped keep my body and my mind calm throughout the cesarean it was quick it was much quicker than I was anticipating kind of in at five and Molly was born at 525 but the actual experience itself for me was was really nice and did you get to hold Molly straight away I didn't know. So she took a little bit of effort to get out. They needed to use the forceps to get her out. And unfortunately, she got a little puncture wound on her chin from the forceps. So they needed to take her over and check that out straight away. And unfortunately, in that hospital, they don't do skin to skin straight away with cesareans. They check everything that baby's okay first, and then they bring baby over. And it's not until you're in recovery that you get that chance to do skin to skin. So that was a little bit disappointing and something that, yeah, I wasn't quite prepared for but also she was okay and I was okay and that's the biggest thing for me and how did you feel physically I suppose were you having any painful symptoms from the genital herpes that was affecting your body or no I really wasn't so it was uncomfortable however as I as soon as I increased the medication the symptoms went away pretty Mm. quickly and then of course from the spinal block I couldn't feel anything (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) the pain medication afterwards again it would have settled down by then but even if it hadn't I probably wouldn't have felt anything yeah Yeah. And do you think that having a good relationship with your obstetrician, do you think that aided in making the whole experience a lot better? Or was it more than that? Was it the team in theatre and how they did things, do you think? I think it was a combination of both. I think knowing my obstetrician and having that relationship with her and her knowing me and what works best for me in terms of what information to provide and how to support me, I think that Mm. allowed for a really smooth process. And I think because in some ways it was a scheduled cesarean, I had time to get my head around that, not heaps of time, but enough time. And it was very calm and the whole team was calm and the anaesthetist was beautiful and the nurses were lovely. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't feel in any way 
rushed or scary. So yeah. in recovery, is that when you got to have skin to skin and were you encouraged to breastfeed at that point by the midwives who were helping you? What happened there? Yeah, so was encouraged to breastfeed and got to have a couple of hours of skin to skin before we went up to our room. Molly didn't latch straight away. She um, became quite a tricky feeder. We just couldn't quite get the dance right early on. And so that was probably the most stressful part of having Molly was breastfeeding. So yeah, but that time in recovery, with skin to skin was beautiful and didn't feel rushed by that at all. Yeah, over time, slowly worked on breastfeeding. How did you find the breastfeeding support and resources at that particular hospital? Really mixed. Some midwives were really supportive and really slow and gentle and encouraging. And some midwives were really forceful, <laughs> probably more negative than positive. So we had a really mixed experience. And I remember the very first time I was up in my room and Molly had woken for a feed around midnight and the midwife came in to help with that. And I remember this one comment that she made, and it's just stuck with me the whole time, is, oh, breastfeeding is going to be hard for you. You've only got really small nipples. So just be prepared. It will be really hard. And at the time, I didn't think much of it. And mm. it's only really as weeks went on that I was like, wow, that's really stuck with me. It's like an initial comment to make of be prepared this is going to be hard was incredibly unhelpful in that moment and it did end up being really hard. When you were discharged from hospital what was the advice from your obstetrician with regards to future pregnancies with VBAC actually brought up at that point in time when you were discharged? It wasn't at that point in time. Mm. It yeah, wasn't something that I started to explore until mm. we started thinking about having another baby. And then as soon as that popped into my mind, that's what was going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How, what was your postpartum experience like when you got home and with Molly and adjusting to breastfeeding and all that sort of thing? How did that go in the end? Physically from the cesarean, I recovered really well. I didn't have any other complications. Um, it was a really smooth recovery physically emotionally and mentally it was really hard from a feeding perspective and that's what yeah that's probably my most challenging part of having molly was feeding it took a long time for us to find a dance and a groove and a rhythm that worked for us breastfeeding continued to be really hard with molly and i would breastfeed and then top up with formula and then sit on the pump and it would just be this revolving cycle and I just became completely exhausted just mentally and emotionally and then physically and hit the point at about three months of doing that that I decided I just can't keep doing this this is just not working for us and so then we decided to stop breastfeeding and pumping and move purely to formula and that was the just right decision for us at that time and it really changed feeding for us once we made that decision 
Great. Yeah. yeah. And you felt uh, at this point in time, were you feeling a little bit like it's a relief moving on, you know, now to mothering and getting to know your baby without that added stress? Yeah, I really yeah. did. I was quite sad um, mm. for a while in terms of making that decision because I had dreamed of breastfeeding and in my head it was something that was going to happen quite easily. And many of my friends around me hadn't had many breastfeeding challenges. And so I hadn't really been exposed to that and so in my mind you know it's just going to happen and the milk's going to be there and she's going to latch and it's going to be wonderful but it really wasn't for us so as soon as we made that decision to move completely to formula it's just like a weight being lifted off my shoulder and I could be so much more emotionally present for her and not be thinking about feeding all the time what is the age gap between Molly and George Uh, Molly was almost two when George was born so just under two years okay and um, how are you feeling when you fell pregnant so you had mentioned there that you were already thinking about VBAC um, at this point what influenced you to go to already think about that pathway I hadn't really been exposed to many people who had had a VBAC and it wasn't until um, actually my partner's cousin had had a VBAC shortly after I had Molly and I had connected with her through that and her support and encouragement and just being able to talk about it is what really inspired me to decide, yeah, actually we we can do this and my body can do this and let's give it a try and see what happens. This might be re- sort of repeating Mel's question, but I suppose I'm curious because you're cesarean, you describe it quite positively. What was your reasoning for not going back in for an elective? Hmm. There was still a part of me that was I guess disappointed in a way that my body (laughs) had decided it needed to have an outbreak of herpes at that time. (laughs) And I was like, come on, body. Um, But there was still a deep desire to try and give birth vaginally and to allow my body to do what I know it could do given the opportunity. So there was this deep desire and gut feeling of, I really want to give this a try. And if it doesn't work, then that that's okay. But I really just want to try it. Yeah. And so did you want to talk us through when you fell pregnant uh, a second time and how old your first was and what was going through your mind? So again, we fell pregnant with George um, really easily, which we were again, really grateful for. We weren't expecting it my period had come back quite early after having molly as i'd stopped breastfeeding quite early and my cycle was really regular and so when we made the decision well let's start trying we assumed it would take a little bit longer but it really didn't so we were incredibly grateful for that i don't think i was fully prepared to be pregnant and have a toddler (laughs) 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 Um, quite a juggle (laughs) Um, I would look back on my first pregnancy and think wow I had it good (laughs) (laughs) I'm home from work nauseous could lay on the couch not move Um, and so the second pregnancy was definitely more exhausting just physically exhausting Um, and Again, nausea lasted about 16 to 18 weeks with George, but then it settled. So you've fallen pregnant again. Um, This is happy news. And you have gone back to, did you decide to go back to the same obstetrician that you had a relationship with? 
I did, yes. Um, and that was always the plan. Uh, I felt really safe and comfortable with her. She knew my history. Um, she knew about the genital herpes and how we managed that the first time. And so if something was to happen, I felt really comfortable that we would make a decision and she would allow that decision to be mine. Um, so I felt really safe going back to her. Did you um, feel as though there was a stigma associated with the genital herpes and pregnancy specifically that people weren't really talking to you about it or you hadn't heard others speak about this before? Was it something, you know, that you still feel people have a stigma about? I think or? there's a huge stigma about it. I have never heard anyone talk about genital herpes alone, let alone in pregnancy. Mm. So for me, I think there is still a huge stigma around it is classified as an STI. And I think the stigma that comes with having an STI is huge, even mm. though it does affect so many Australians and particularly women, it's something that just isn't talked about. And certainly myself, I had only shared with a very small handful of friends prior to Molly's birth that I even had herpes, I felt mm. uncomfortable talking about it because of that mm. stigma. And I guess some of the shame that comes with that as well. Mm. And it wasn't until I had Molly and made that decision to have a cesarean that I thought, no, we, we can talk about this. Like, why are we not talking about this? There is no shame in having mm. genital herpes why should we feel like that there is and people would ask so many people would ask why did you have cesarean um and I thought well that's my opportunity to mm. be really honest and transparent about that and if that can help one or two other women around me who may be experiencing it as well talk mm. about it then that's a good thing yeah mm, absolutely yeah as you say, there may actually be other women that have had the experience, but they may feel that they, they don't want to speak about it because of that stigma or, mm. or whatever it may be. And then people might misunderstand, you know, what goes on or what the symptoms are and what to look for and what your options are. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Did your obstetrician know that you would like, a, you would like to experience a VBAC and was she supportive of it? She did. It was something that I brought up at our very first appointment. <laughs> <laughs> and what was her reaction? What did she, she say? She was so supportive. She was like, yes, I knew you were going to say that anyway. Let's do it. There's no reason why we can't. Let's put everything in motion. This is what's happening. And so I felt so supported by her. And so many of my friends were so surprised that she was so supported, uh, like supportive of that. Um, yeah. but no, she fully had my back with that completely, um, which was really, really exciting. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, had she have not been supportive, do you think you would have sought a different care provider or...? Yes, that was my plan. So in my head, I'd already started researching what private providers were supportive of a VBAC in Adelaide. So I had I had that parked just in case I needed to access it. Um, yeah. But I really felt like I wouldn't need it. And I didn't, which was amazing. Great. So do you want to tell us about the tools that you used in this pregnancy to help support you yourself physically and mentally for a VBAC? So I started doing a lot of research around VBACs and just getting my head around 
what resources are out there? What do I need to do to get my body ready for doing that? And also talking, yeah, talking to my partner's cousin. I found your podcast, which she recommended. And so I became an avid listener. <laughs> oh, that's great. And yeah, just, just started to see what was out there. In some ways, it was also just around preparing my body for birth again, mm. not necessarily having the VBAC component, but just birth. How do I get my body ready for birth? And how do we try and get in the best possible position that a VBAC can happen? And had you told yourself in your mind, you know, if I do have another outbreak um, of the HSV, is that is this what we say, HSV? I have HSV one, yeah. So there's yeah. two. Which so is is one colsals? Well, one is traditionally colsals. <clears throat> okay, yeah. It can be passed through oral sex. Okay, and that's how HSV one turns into HSV one genital. Okay, um, and then HSV two is mostly genital, but a slightly oh, right. different strain of the virus. So, had you sort of told yourself, okay, in this case scenario, because um, you were you were speaking about the fact that you had mapped out this second birth. Um, as a part of your birth preparation. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. And so had you said to yourself, okay, if I go down this path, I will have an elective cesarean or I will attempt a vaginal birth? No, absolutely. So part of that mapping with my OB was if in the event that I'm on the suppressive medication and my body has another outbreak, then we'll make that decision to have a scheduled cesarean. And that that felt really good. I felt really comfortable with that, knowing how positive my previous cesarean was. Mm. I felt like that was, again, a really good option. I had just <coughs> myself in my gut that no back is it wasn't my preferred route <laughs> when you say map did you read the birth map by Catherine Bell yes I did yep and oh, some friends it. had used some mapping as well um, and a friend was going through the process of doing her birth mapping at the same time and so yeah we shared our information around that and it felt it felt really nice it felt like a good terminology to be using and knowing that there was a chance that I was going to need to make a scheduled cesarean having that kind of planned out and that route there was really comforting to me yeah yeah that's, yeah, that's really really good um did you do anything else like physical did you do like see chiropractor or anything like that yeah it was a little bit um so I saw an acupuncturist really early on for the nausea and then had decided that felt really nice let's just continue that throughout the whole pregnancy which I'm really glad that I did so I did that I did some research around spinning babies and started doing quite a few of their different postures just to try and open the body up and try and help baby be in the just right position and luckily he just was the whole time um so everything looked really positive to yeah say why not really were you concerned about uterine rupture during this pregnancy I really wasn't I talked about it with my obstetrician and she had talked about the facts and the risks and it really wasn't something that I thought about. I don't know if I just lived in a little bit of a cloud land of, you know, that small percentage isn't going to be me, even though it could well have been me. 
it's not something that played on my mind at all. Mm. It's really good that your obstetrician also seemed quite supportive as well and not, you know, I think that also is helpful when your care provider is not really putting that on you as a, as a major concern, if yes, that makes absolutely. sense. We talked about it once in a relatively early appointment when we were talking about the mapping and she talked about the risk, but it's, it's the only time she brought it up mm. and she never mentioned it again the entire pregnancy. And did you ever try any hypnobirthing or other birth preparation tools, any sort of um, mental relaxation or anything to mentally get, get yourself in the headspace? I had. So I'd done a bit of research around breath work and had downloaded some YouTube videos and some kind of different relaxation music and had read Juju's birth skills book um, and so went back and refreshed on that. Didn't do a full course. Um, it in the time of COVID it was all via Zoom and I'm not someone that learns really great via Zoom and yeah. so I just felt like it wasn't going to be the best fit for me it was more kind of that self-learning and talking to friends and so I'd taken bits and pieces from different things that I had read and was practicing um, but I really didn't pick one kind of thing and go right that's that's how I'm going to do it. Speaking of COVID did you get, you got COVID in your pregnancy, not once, but twice. Twice. Wow. And this that really is... surprises me as well, because you're in Adelaide. There weren't as many cases there as obviously Melbourne, New South Wales and the rest of the country. So did you want to talk us through all of that? Were you concerned about getting COVID or did it, did it take you by surprise? I wasn't necessarily concerned about getting it I knew it was probably inevitable at some stage and in my brain I thought well let's get it on slightly earlier in pregnancy because then my chances of getting it again in later pregnancy are going to be quite small in yeah. theory that was the plan and so I had got COVID when I was around 25 weeks in early January which is when the borders opened in South Australia and so then came this massive influx of COVID and unfortunately my daughter brought it home from childcare and shared it with me which you know as they do <laughs> and that first lot of COVID I was really unwell I really really struggled I was completely exhausted for weeks it took probably about five or six weeks to get my pre-COVID energy levels back which was a hard time. At the same time, my husband had a mountain biking accident and broke both of his elbows. <laughs> so that was really bad timing in terms of parenting a toddler while pregnant and having COVID. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It was crazy. <laughs> you have, did you have support? Like, you have family nearby to help we you? No, we don't have family oh. nearby, but we have an amazing group of friends who all rallied together and I felt incredibly supported by them. So in my head, I had my COVID during pregnancy and it wasn't going to happen again. I was wrong. <laughs> so the second time, was that as severe as the first time? What kind of effect did it have on you? So I got COVID again at 37 and three days 
And that was a really, like having a really mild head cold. I'd had my flu shot the week before. And so in my mind, I was just having a reaction to the flu shot, um, which I often do. And I thought, I'll, I'll just, I'll do the right thing and I'll go and get a COVID test because I've got all these antenatal appointments coming up this week. And I, I don't want to be that person who spreads COVID. So I went and had a COVID test on, yeah, that day and that came back positive. And at that stage, they were still, they were kind of saying the, the whole 12-week period that you, you're probably not going to get it again within 12 weeks. This was literally like 12 weeks and two days. And so in my head, I thought, oh, it's probably still the first strain. Maybe the test is still picking up on the shedding of the first strain that I had 12 weeks ago. So I rang our pathology uh, company who does them here and spoke to this really lovely doctor. And she was like, no, you've got a different strain. It's, it's a new one. Um, you're in this really small percent of South Australians who have now had it twice. And I was like, yeah, go me. <laughs> That's a great statistic. Oh, you poor You said it was milder. So that, I guess, was a, a good thing. Um, but did this affect your birth in any way? Absolutely, it did. So this is where the fun begins. <laughs> so um, in my head, of course, I was only 37 weeks and I'd had a telehealth appointment with my obstetrician the following day. And we're like, it's fine. All I have to do is survive five more days of baby staying in and then COVID's not going to impact my birth. Why is it that you needed five more days? What was the reason for that? It was going to be my seven days. So at that point, it was oh, seven to days. the infection, yeah. Yeah, to get rid ah, of the infection. Of the private hospital that I wanted to go to and had planned to go to was not accepting COVID positive women at birth. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So that's where it was like, right, well, you, if you've had COVID and you're past your seven days, then you're fine to come and give birth in our hospital and we will support you. I've heard um, other women tell me about this, about the private and public divide. Why is that in the private hospital? Is it just that they don't have the facilities to deal with COVID patients um, if you were to deteriorate or, or why is it? I think so. That's the information that I had received. And early on when COVID kind of started in South Australia, it was decided that all women who were pregnant or who went into labour who had COVID would go to the main or one of the main public hospitals to give birth because they had the resources in case something else was to happen and they needed extra medical attention. And so that was kind of the pathway that was mapped out really early on in 2020. But I think unfortunately it, that that pathway didn't change. So when there was a large percentage of women getting COVID at birth time, in South Australia, it still was that same way and private hospitals didn't feel like they were equipped to deal with it. Okay, so you went into labour at 37 plus, what was it? Four. 37 plus four. 37 plus four. And how many days into your COVID period was it? That was day three. 
Okay, okay. So tell us, how are you feeling when you, what were the onsets of labour? Was COVID affecting your contractions in any way? I don't think COVID was initially. And so I'd gone to bed that night pretty early on, put my toddler to bed. At this stage, my husband was sleeping in the spare room to avoid getting COVID. So he was in there and I'd gone to bed and I'd woken up about an hour later with just a little bit of wetness in my underwear. And I thought, oh, that's a little bit weird, but you know, weird stuff happens at the end of pregnancy. It's not my waters. This is not happening. Go back to bed. <laughs> so I was in total denial that this could actually be my waters. So I went back to bed, slept for about another hour and a half, woke up with the urge to go to the toilet, made it to the bathroom, and then this massive gush happened. And my first thoughts were swear words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I was just this, this this can't be happening like this this is not happening now because now I don't get to go to the hospital that I want to and I don't get the obstetrician that I want to and now I have to go a completely oh different pathway that I don't know so even the obstetrician couldn't attend you at the public hospital he wasn't allowed to no oh, wow yeah, so in my head, that was the first reaction of this is this is not happening, this can't be happening because now everything's going to fall apart and now I'm not going to get my V back because it's all going to be different. So I trotted off to wake up my husband. <laughs> um, hey, honey, my waters have broken. And he's like, no, they haven't. Like, you're just tricking me. Go back to bed. I'm like, no, they have. Um, yeah, and so that was then a matter of ringing my private obstetrician just to double check what the plan was. They had called the public hospital and then the public hospital called me. So I went into the public hospital that night just to check it was my waters and just to make sure that everything else was okay so we did that for a couple of hours and then I came home and then yeah stayed home that evening was in really early labor like contractions had slowly started incredibly mild irregular not a lot was happening I was so excited, though, that I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I was like, take some Panadol and try and get some sleep. That didn't happen. That was never going to happen. Just the endorphins that kicked in of, wow, my body's doing it and it's doing it. And this is what I really wanted. I really wanted my body to do it and it's doing it. And I was just so excited about that, that I didn't sleep at all. So the plan was I'll stay at home for as long as I can. The hospital had said the latest I could come in was 2 p.m. the next day because if nothing was happening by then because my waters would have been broken for a while then they would want to start me on some antibiotics um, which I was fine with um, I thought oh I'll be in before then <laughs> this thing's happening like this let's go so we went it was a, it was a tricky call in the morning to make to be honest when to go into hospital I found that really really hard to know when I wanted to stay home for as long as I possibly could that's what I really wanted but I also had an almost two-year-old at home who was a close contact with COVID and so our friend who we had always planned to come up and look after her was still very happy to come up and look after her even though Molly was deemed a close contact but I didn't really want to be in the house at the same time as that. I There was part of me that really didn't want to potentially share my COVID with my friend. But then how was Molly going to manage that as well? 
And so I, we found, yeah, I found it a really hard decision to make of when to go into hospital. So we decided to go in quite early the next morning before Molly woke up. We thought that would probably be easier, that she wakes up and our friend is here rather than us and then go in later. And that's probably the biggest thing. If I could go back and change anything, that's the thing I would change. <laughs> I would have stayed home. <laughs> Yeah. yeah so would you say you had well, you were experiencing contractions at this point um, I was, yeah. and how far apart would you say they were oh they were five to six minutes apart quite irregular in how long they were going for some were 10 seconds some were a minute so there was no predictability around yeah. them but um, very manageable would you say very manageable yeah, yeah very manageable I did put the tens machine on quite early um just to play around with it and kind yeah. of get the settings and see what it felt like <laughs> um and then we went into hospital and everything stopped Yes, the body just went, no thanks. <laughs> this, this, is not, this is not how this is happening. Um, yeah, which I hear is really common. Yeah, when, yes. when, when you shift, it can happen. Yeah, when you shift uh, positions as well, that particularly environments from your home to hospital or from mm -hmm. wherever you are. Did you tell this hospital in advance that you were going to come? Yeah, so they were really they were really good to chat with and their advice was come in pretty much, they just said, come in whenever you feel like you need to <laughs> yeah. um, and come in when it works. You do have COVID. So if you do want to come in earlier and we can just be monitoring to make sure that there's no other complications happening, which were unlikely, but they still said, yep, come on in whenever you want to. The room is there. Um, the team's ready to go and we can support you yeah they sounded fairly supportive even though this wasn't uh how you had planned your your v back to sort of look you arrived to a supportive team would you say and absolutely yeah I they were incredibly supportive um we were really lucky and we were offered a student midwife and she was just delightful and so she was there for pretty much the entire labor and everyone was incredibly supportive of a VBAC no one even questioned it um no yeah the obstetrician I was expecting in my head the obstetrician to kind of walk in and say I don't know your history um this is really unsafe I don't think so we need to do a cesarean I had that kind of idea in my mind that maybe that might happen because they don't know me but they didn't and the whole team were beautiful at that time in Adelaide was there a fear of COVID uh, like do you, did you find that people were treating you differently or or not really I think I had just gotten over kind of the fear phase I think probably six to eight weeks earlier I think there was still a lot of fear in, in some ways I maybe I felt like I was treated nicer because I had COVID <laughs> well that's that's always a positive thing <laughs> the amount of times I was thinking like, am I okay do I need anything it, it was strange turning up to hospital because they had this kind of back way of taking in COVID women into the birthing suites yes we, we went this kind of back way through all these corridors and there was only 
the like minimal amount of people in the room as possible, which was really nice. In some ways, I kind of felt like I got a little bit of extra attention because I had COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, that's good. And they had no idea about your your genital herpes. They were not informed by your obstetrician and they had no idea they were treating you like a, a V-back woman who has COVID essentially. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, mm. It wasn't until a little bit later on um, once we'd made the decision to use the oxytocin drip to try and get labour going. It wasn't until a little while after that that one of the obstetricians came in and was reviewing my history and noticed that I'd had a cesarean and asked why. And, and so we had that conversation around herpes and she was like, well, has anybody checked to make sure there's no lesions? Like, is this we need to check and I was like no nobody's checked yet but I don't have an active outbreak and she was like well how do you know I was like because I can feel them and I know when I'm having an outbreak she's like well we still have to check I was like that's fine do what you have to do at your end to check but I know I'm not having an outbreak she's like oh well I'll determine that and so she was a little bit standoffish and that that was the only moment that yeah felt a little bit uncomfortable during yeah during labor but yeah she checked and confirmed there were no active lesions so she was really happy for me to yeah continue with mm. so you mentioned there that you were you accepted the syntocin on to speed things up what, can you take us back to where the conversations around that and when that was suggested so it was I'd been in hospital for about four hours and nothing was really nothing was happening really contractions had really slowed and we were reaching that point well I felt like I was reaching that point of you know, what, what is my body doing I need I need to get this going um, and we'd had conversations around then like the midwife had talked about they really only like you to continue labor for a maximum of 48 hours after your waters has have broken due to the possible of getting an infection and so I had that kind of time frame in the back of my mind but also felt like my body wasn't quite doing what it needed to do and so I had had a conversation with the midwife around starting the drip it's one of the things during pregnancy that I really wanted to avoid. I really felt like it would become the cascade of interventions and it would be the start of that. And my private obstetrician was actually really keen to avoid that because of the potential increased risk of then the urine rupture. So that's something that she was really keen to yes, stay away from. So I had that in my mind as well. However, the public system team seemed fine with it. They're like, oh, well, we'll just start it off really slowly um, and we're monitoring you really closely. There's a midwife in with you all the time. So the risk is still really low. So if you want to, I think let's do it. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, all right, let's do it then. If that's, if that's how we're going to get this baby out and that's going to increase my chance of having a successful VBAC, let's do the drip. And how are you finding the contractions with the drip? So initially, once it had started, not much was happening. It took a while to, I think, for my body to get the signal that that's what it needed to do. Mm. Um, and so to begin with, I felt really comfortable and really relaxed. And then about 
maybe about two hours into that, the midwife and I decided it was time to turn it up because not much was happening. And the moment that happened, it became very intense very quickly. Um, and that I was not prepared for. <laughs> How did you manage the uh, intensity? So as the intensity increased, I tried a lot of different things to work my way through them. Um, initially, I tried lots of breathing techniques. I tried lots of different positions to get into. Um, I tried the shower. I tried sitting on the toilet, like every possible thing I could think of and the midwife was suggesting. We did some light touch. We did some deep pressure, sitting on the fit ball. Um, everything that I had in my toolkit I was using, was trying the TENS machine. That was driving me crazy in the end, so I ended up ripping that off. <laughs> it just got really annoying. Um, yeah. And I really, I really struggled to find something to settle into it. Um, and I found the intensity so extreme from not much, not much to bam, it's game on. I just felt like my body didn't have a chance to build up to it. And in some way, I felt quite blindsided by that and not prepared at all for that intensity. And I just couldn't find something that was comfortable. And I had asked the midwife at that stage to do an internal check to see, you know, where was I? You know, what was actually happening down there? Was this something that was going to last a long time? Um, or was my body actually doing what it needed to do quite quickly? Yeah. Which is what I was hoping for. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so they did a check and by this stage, I was only like three centimetres dilated. And I remember hearing the number. And even though I wanted to, I told myself, I want to know the numbers. I'm someone, if I know the numbers, I can kind of mentally prepare myself for what might be coming up next. Mm -hmm. But the moment I heard that three, my body just went, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Only a three. And this is how intense it is. How am I going to do this? And then did you request for other types of pain relief at this point? I did. So well, we thought, well, let's keep going for a little bit longer. Let's see if we can find something that I can settle into and let's try something consistently for kind of half an hour to 45 minutes and see if that helps. So I tried some different positions again and I found one on all fours with my husband on the fit ball and holding onto his legs. And that was probably the most comfortable position that I could find. But at this point, I also started to get quite exhausted even though it hadn't been a long time, I'd been awake for so long prior. And I think the excitement, but I think also the mental load of having to quickly shift to a completely different map of how my birth was going to pan out. I just hit a point of going, I, I'm going to need something. Um, so can we try the gas? So yeah, I started with the gas and that seemed to help for a short amount of time. And then I worked out that my body doesn't react very well to the gas. <laughs> um, yeah, it's often something you hear. Was it, did you start to feel like nausea at all? Or? I felt a bit nauseous, but I also felt like I was becoming really loopy. And mm. things that I was saying were not things that I would normally be saying. I, it started to feel 
quite disconnected from my body and that felt really scary to me and it was at that point where I thought I can't keep doing I can't keep using the gas but I just felt shattered and I don't know if having COVID played a part in that I didn't have my rest days like I'd hoped I felt like I didn't go in with my energy bucket that I'd really hoped to have and so it was that point that I thought I, I can't keep doing this for a long amount of time I'm exhausted and I just don't feel like I'm connected to my body yeah were you coughing as, as well and were you like sort of sniffly it was more just the headache I was sniffly yeah um, sniffly and headachy and body was a bit achy yeah um, kind of flu symptoms mm. um, so yeah it, I think it was a combination of things for me in that moment that just didn't work at this point were you sort of screaming for the epidural yeah. <laughs> pretty much it was at this point that my brain went okay um about, about, there was one moment apparently where I yelled out just cut the baby out of me I'm oh. <laughs> which my husband likes to remind me of and the moment I caught myself saying that I was just like that's not what I want <laughs> I don't want you to cut the baby out of me that's not an easy way out of this I did I just I just couldn't stay connected to my body and I just didn't feel like I was in control yeah and so it was at that point that I said can you do another internal check? Like, have I even moved? Like, because if I haven't moved, I want that epidural now. So they'd done another check. And by this time I was five centimetres, which was great. So my body was moving, but I was only five centimetres. <laughs> <laughs> and in my head, I went, I, I don't know if I can continue to do this at this intensity plus higher and be so excited and present when my baby comes out mm. and so that's when I opted for an epidural yeah do you know if you're you were still connected to the hormone drip the synthetic hormone drip at this point or was, was. or had your body taken over or were you connected the whole time would you say I was connected yeah I was connected the whole time prior to getting the epi, like the epidural I'd had a fetal scalp like the screw inserted so you didn't have the strap around your belly because you had the fetal scalp um, monitor yeah so I ended up having both actually oh, okay so I had the fetal scalp monitor his heart rate they couldn't track it very well with just the external monitor to kind of keep decelerating and then it would increase and then it would decelerate again and so they were getting a little bit worried about what he was actually doing in there so they had asked me how I felt about having that inserted and I was absolutely fine with that if that was a way of tracking that he was okay I was okay with that the drip was still in and yeah and then asked for the epidural so I felt like I had all these things attached <laughs> and it was yes. hard to move around and I wanted to stay really active but was you know taking this drip with me and then have this like scalp monitor hanging out of me and this strap around my tummy and I just I just felt like it, there was just stuff everywhere <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then I guess when you when the epidural went in did you feel like um, we've heard women say that the fog was sort of lifted did you feel 
a little bit more in control now that did yeah I felt a lot more in control mm-hmm. um I remember listening to stories and women saying be prepared that it might take a while for the epidural to kick in um and that's exactly what happened apparently the anaesthetist was quite busy that day you could hear other women birthing it like the ward was, was busy and so he took a while to get there and then I didn't realize how long it would actually take to kick in between him putting it in and it actually starting to take effect. So it was probably another two hours by this point um, before I started to get a little bit of relief. But as soon as I did, I just felt my whole body relax and the brain lifted, like that fog, that brain fog lifted. Mm-hmm. And I felt myself reconnect with my body and I was like, ah, I'm calm and I'm present and I feel a sense of control now and I feel good. And when you sort of propped up as to be in the most ideal position possible for baby to come down, did you feel yeah, like I you were propped was. up? Yeah, yeah, I was propped up. And then we also used the peanut ball mm. as well. So that was really helpful. So the midwife recommended that just to help keep everything open. I was able to sleep for a couple of hours, which felt incredible. Um, and so I woke up from that feeling amazing. And I could still feel the contractions. It wasn't a, it didn't take that away. That intensity wasn't there. Um, That allowed, I think, everything to open and relax quite quickly because then it wasn't, it wasn't a very long time before I was 10 centimetres dilated. And the midwife was like, right, we're ready to push. And so I think that's what my body needed was just a relaxation to allow everything to open. Were you instructed to sort of push straight away or did they want to give you more time for your body to sort of push on its own? Or what did they sort of say to you at that point? Yeah, so they gave, they kind of gave those options um, around what do you want to do? And I said, well, can I allow the epidural to start to wear off a bit more? Um, And then let's just see if my body instinctively starts to do that and at some at some level it did but not not I think again not to the intensity that it needed to Um, Mm. and so we would wait for a contraction to come and then we would use that as a way of pushing and I had a a, they'd changed midwives at this point like they'd had a shift change and I had this most wonderful glorious midwife waltz in full of energy really supportive really soft and nurturing but also quite firm when she needed to be and and it seemed to be this really nice balance for me of right you know I've got you back here and this is what we're going to do okay now is the time to do it um that was this really nice kind of dance that we had between us um and yeah it felt good oh that's wonderful so how long would you say it took um the pushing phase for you that took a while so that ended up taking about two and a half hours which I again didn't anticipate it taking that long towards the end of that they started to notice that George's heart rate was dripping like dropping again and they started to get a little bit concerned about that Um, and so they the midwife ended up calling the obstetrician in and she came in and she was just tracking his heart rate for a while and tracking my contractions 
and decided that it just wasn't happening as quick as she would like it to happen. And in order to make sure George was okay, she wanted to get George out quite quickly. So, And I was completely okay with that. Um, it felt like my body couldn't quite do exactly what it needed to in the moment. So I was okay with having some assistance for that because by that time I just wanted my baby. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> and so she was really great. We talked through the options of what that could look like and I felt really supported to make the decision that felt the most comfortable to me and so we opted for using the Vontus um, and having a really small episiotomy um, and that worked a treat as soon as that happened he was out very quickly. Uh, did you reach down at this point when when that was all happening? Yeah, yeah, I did. I got to reach down and my husband got to reach down as well. And then as soon as baby came out, baby, yeah, he was straight up on me. And we didn't know we were having a boy. We knew with Molly we were having a girl, but we decided not to find out this time. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine. My chest. Yeah, it was incredible. And then you had some time with him on your chest, um, I imagine. And, and yeah, do you remember the words, anything that you were saying at this point? Or? I don't think you say much, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think it was such relief that he was okay, but also such amazement that I did get to have a VBAC um, and that that got to happen. And I felt really really powerful in a way and even though it wasn't the way I had mapped it out to go and it wasn't intervention free and it wasn't drug free I still felt so proud that I got to experience that and that George was okay and he was safe and we were okay yeah Yeah. and you it sounds like you did a lot of in your mapping in the process you basically understood that there are scenarios where these sort of uh, events can happen and I think that yeah you feeling in control definitely um, must have helped in your whole mental state just feeling like elated after this experience even though it wasn't what you originally had envisioned it was still you making the call exactly and I felt yeah I felt in control of every decision that was made and I think also just hearing so many women share their stories of every possible scenario of what could happen when that did happen, it wasn't a foreign concept to me. Um, I knew that women had experience before and I'd heard them talk about it. And so my brain could access that in the moment and know that it was safe and it was okay. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. So did you have any complications with the placenta delivery um, or was that all okay? I did. Um, I had a postpartum hemorrhage, um, oh. so that, that was not, not joyful. <laughs> um, oh. So I opted for the injection for the placenta to come out. And so, yeah, that happened. And then as soon as the placenta came out, I had had um, yeah, quite a large hemorrhage. At that point, I had also started having a reaction to the injection, which this was, this was a very new thing to me. I hadn't known. And I started vomiting pretty much straight away that was quite uncomfortable trying to hold this new baby and bask in this glory of oxytocin and vomit at the same time (laughs) that went on for a little while and then once they got the hemorrhage under control things settled and the vomiting stopped and 
everybody left the room and then it was really calm and quiet and lovely. So then you had this time to just connect with you two. Being COVID positive, did that affect being with your baby, like you and your baby bonding, or were they very supportive of mother and baby being together? Um, they were incredibly supportive of that. Um, I feel like COVID did not even come into account when it was about mother baby. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that I'm really grateful for. Unfortunately, it did mean that my husband had to leave quite quickly after birth. So he was only allowed to stay in hospital for a couple of hours. And then as soon as I was moved up to the maternity ward, he had to go. So that that was quite disappointing. Um, and that was quite sad for him that he didn't get to have that experience with us so that Mm. that was really the biggest thing that COVID impacted for us other than the entire birth (laughs) (laughs) other than not having my obstetrician oh my goodness I know I just think like you're amazing to because you know to to do that that's really it's so far from what you had envisioned you know and and what you had you you didn't even have the obstetrician that you paid for attend your birth well you didn't have did you have to wear a mask during labor Um, no I didn't have to wear a mask no everybody else was in full PPE okay and so no I didn't have to wear a mask oh that's good that's good so then tell us about your postpartum you know that comment that that midwife had said initially about your nipples did that play on your mind this time around or did you have in your mind I'm going to do things my way this time I'm not going to let anything affect Mm yeah yeah Throughout being pregnant, it played on my mind and I was, I would say I was more anxious about breastfeeding than I was about birth. Um, Mm. And for me, while I really wanted a VBAC, I knew birth was going to be what birth was going to be. And I had surrendered to that and having COVID made me surrender to that even further, that this is what it's going to be. Um, But it was the breastfeeding that played on my mind of, you know, what if it's tricky again? If it's tricky again, what am I going to do? Um, And in my mind, I had already decided if it's really hard and it's not working, then we're just going to go straight to formula bottle feeding. We're not going to spend this huge amount of time doing this vicious cycle, which was completely draining physically and emotionally. Um, George, however, he latched straight away. He latched, um, yeah, he did the breast crawl and he was straight on. Um, And it's like we just knew what to do this time. And he's a very different baby to what Molly was. Um, And... I didn't, I'm not having the milk supply struggles that I had with Molly. I'd done some antenatal expressing this time, Mm -hmm. um, which maybe that helped. I'm not sure. I still don't have a huge supply. I'm one of these women that just doesn't have a huge amount of milk. So I am taking um, the motilium to help that and the difference. Uh, But we, yeah, breastfeeding has been easy and beautiful this time with George, um, which is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, really seem to have two completely contrasting experiences. In terms of recovery physically, how were you going? Did with, with the small episiotomy, with did they say like what kind of tear? This is what I don't really understand actually. <laughs> to this point, is that do they still say you had like a what's equivalent to like a second degree tear or a first degree? Like how does it sort of 
what did they tell you? They didn't really tell me much, to be honest. All okay. Like, How many stitches did you have to use? And she said two. And I was like, okay, well, two means small, right? Two stitches means it's like it's really small. Um, so that's great. <laughs> In my mind, I kind of had that was probably equivalent to maybe a first degree tear um but they didn't really say they didn't really say that um mm. it was just she said I had a small one it just took two stitches to repair um I think your recovery will be quite smooth um unfortunately my wound ended up getting infected so that became really uncomfortable and then I started taking antibiotics and then I got thrush um and then I got a occurrence of HSV um Aww. just at the end of having thrush yeah which Aww. is so it was so interesting the way that that mapped out um differently to the first pregnancy and I think my that my system down there was under so much physical stress um from the birth that yeah then a reoccurrence of herpes happened again so unfortunate that happened and then how did you manage your um your episode um just in new newly new postpartum recovering from birth and and all that yeah again I mean I knew what it was straight away um Mm -hmm. you know it's a very specific tingling feeling that I think if you have thrush you get real I'm sorry if you have herpes you get really good at picking it up straight away because it's very different to any other tingling well it is for me anyway I'm not sure if it's the same for all women but it's quite specific so the moment I felt it I knew that it was a herpes episode so for me I just jumped on my medication straight away and within 48 hours it had settled so I'm really grateful that my body reacts to it that way and that I can move on from it quite quickly but it was just yeah like another oh there's another annoying thing <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and um in terms of mentally are we, what was what was different this time yeah, I felt I felt amazing mentally this time. I just felt really, really proud of myself and proud of my body and proud of George and my husband that we got to have that VBAC experience and it just it, it felt really empowering. And even though my cesarean was empowering and it was beautiful and Molly's birth was amazing, just being able to experience a vaginal birth made a huge difference for me it's just something that I really wanted to be able to do one day and so mentally I felt amazing and I think the fact that George was feeding so well also made a massive difference this time physically I recovered quite quickly from the episiotomy once the infection and everything had settled I yeah felt really good and I haven't had any ongoing struggles um with that at all which has been incredible oh that's lovely so longer term I guess well it's only been 13 weeks I guess Mm -hmm. but um you've been you feel like you're pretty much well healed up there and there's no no issues uh that in you know that you can foresee (laughs) (laughs) that I know of no issues yeah oh that's wonderful yeah which is amazing I feel like, um, I mean, one thing I didn't ask during your pregnancy, I suppose, but it obviously sounds like your husband was very supportive mm. um, of your VBAC. It sounds like that. Was that the case? And and close family or friends, was that the case? Yeah, yeah very much the case. Um, yeah, my husband was very much whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, you with that. Hadn't really talked about it much with family, um, but friends were incredibly supportive and my husband was. And yeah. 
yeah I had a wonderful community around me yeah Oh, that's so lovely. Um, thank you so much for chatting to us, Shelley, and reaching out um, to share your story. I think that's really important that women hear this side, um, you know, having an STI or, you know, genital herpes, no one, like you mentioned, no one really talks about it outside of pregnancy. It's something that there is a stigma, but, you know, the more women share their experiences, the less isolating it would feel and the more you can normalize these things because yes, you're right. Like I was looking into it. There's just so many women, not just in Australia, but all around the world who are going through this. It's quite, quite a high statistic, but you won't realize it unless you look into it because no one really talks about it. So um, thank you so much. You know, Steph and I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for your podcast. Um, I think it helped a lot in preparing me to have a successful VBAC and I think you're right I think the more women can feel okay talking about what's happening for them and if it doesn't have to necessarily be herpes just anything that there's any stigma around we don't need to let that stigma kind of get in and impact us you know we can take charge and put it out there um, so we can support each other. Thank you for listening to this VBAC journey. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a review or consider joining our Patreon. We thank you very much for your support. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.